HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Brooklyn Kitchen, a mom-and-pop operation since 2006. They provide the tools that shape our food culture. Visit them at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or visit thebrooklynkitchen.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from 12 to roughly 1 in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Here again today with Nastasha Hammer-Lopez. Welcome back. Thank you. And and as usual, Jack and uh, Joe over in the engineering room. Howdy. Uh, By the way, Nastasha, someone, uh, I said on the tweet out for today's uh, program that you were going to be back. And uh, I said, you know, the hammer's going to be back. And someone was like, is that your nickname? I'm like, no, that's Nastasha's nickname. And uh, he's like, well, what's her Twitter handle? And I was like, oh, ooh, ooh, no, 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 no Twitter handle. I was like, uh, you know, well, Nastasha only believes in anti-social media. Uh So I told him that Nastasha refuses to have a Twitter handle until... They invent anti-social media, and then someone else chimed in. It's like it, it already is freaking anti-social media. I was like, hey, hey point taken, <laughs> point taken. So yeah, so b- apparently, like people are so mean and rough on Twitter, you might actually enjoy it. Yeah. Like if you had a Twitter handle that had nothing to do with work, so you didn't have to be nice. If you could just sit there and be incredibly vicious to people, but people didn't know maybe who you were, you would love that. Yeah, you can do that. A time investment for it Nastasia, is, though, right? Huge time. Uh, look, it doesn't. The, Nastasia will invest any amount of time to be vicious. That is needed to, to be invested. I mean, she's always typing on the computer anyway. Why not have it be like? Uh, why not have it be towards Twitter? Oh, no, Nastasia, you know what Joe did last week what? while you're gone? What? He shopped for shoes during the show. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for holding the torch. Joe. Boom! <laughs> yeah, no one actually knows what Nastasia is doing on that computer. It's vicious. It's crazy. She's nuts. Anyway, uh, welcome back. Thanks. 
Yeah, how you doing? Good. What would your Twitter... Like, I'm sure the hammer's already taken, so you couldn't even have that Twitter handle if you wanted. I think it'd have to be, a like, a secret name, so I can call out people. Like me? Yeah. Like, you wouldn't yeah. tell me. Yeah. You would write in and be like, this guy doesn't know anything. He's an idiot. <laughs> He's a moron. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Uh, call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We have one more show before the Valentine's Day, correct? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Are you big on Valentine's Day? You know I am. You know oh, really? I love the... Oh, I love me. I don't really... Look, and now, look, I have two kids, an 11-year-old and uh, and an 8-year-old, so I'm more worried about their Valentine's Day at this point, which, you know, when I, at that age for me... Val, growing up, Valentine's Day... Get the all ready, Jack. <laughs> I don't know. I won. Like, all of, like you get ready to play DJ Khaled. All I do is win because wow. I freaking won. Wow. But the point of the matter is, like, in order to become, like, the all-time champion, like, my wife is awesome. Super psyched. You know what I mean? And we started going out on Valentine's Day. So Valentine's Day, almost tw- 21 years ago, this Valentine's Day, uh, my wife and I, our relationship can go to the bar and have a drink because we've been going out. We will have been together 21 years at that point. But... um but yeah, I mean Valentine's Day always sucked for me. I always hated it growing up. I'm sure my kids will be the same way. Actually, Dax, I bet Dax will have good Valentine's days. Yeah, it doesn't think- really matter until like what I don't know, fourteen, thirteen. No, you know what, dude, you're in the thing. I mean, even before then, even like eleven, you know, eleven, twelve, you have to buy the carnations. Is this just in the East Coast, or we all? Is everyone in the world have this? Where like you buy carnations and you write stuff on it, and the money goes to the school, like to the to the school body, and they go around on Valentine's Day and they hand out the carnations. It might just be. It's just East Coast. Maybe, yeah. Jack, Jack did you, you did that stuff. No, I, I never did that. Joe, but no, none. Anyway, horrible, horrible. And I always, they, they always, if you never, if no one bought you one, if your friends didn't buy you one, and you would buy different colors, like red was I love you, and green was, I don't know, I don't know what the hell green was. Anyway, it's like, because who the hell, they're fake, these carnations. They just dip the, they dip the stems in, in coloring, and it colors up the carnation. Ridiculous. And you know, it's these crappy carnations that give carnations, which by the way are a fine flower. It took, my, it took me about 12 years or 13 years to convince my wife that the carnation was a legitimately good flower because she's like, they suck because she's only used to shitty car. Ooh, crappy Watch carnations. It. Crappy carnations. Sorry, folks. Anyway, hey, uh, Dave, we've got a caller. Wow. Whoa. All right, anyway, I, I got the secret admirer one, which means no one bought me one. Now you can play the off. Okay, <laughs> caller, you're on the air. Hey, this is Johnny Clark from Memphis. How hey, you doing, Dave? how you doing? Doing all right. I'm doing good. I got picked up some stainless steel uh, tubing yesterday. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, about four and a half feet of it and had it cut into one-inch sections and um, leveled it off and everything. And I was trying to figure out the best way to keep the – I was making like a savory cheesecake, and I wanted to uh, cook it in the circulator. Right. And I was trying to figure out the best way to keep it in there because it started pouring out and, you know – when the vacuum was pulling, it's pouring out. Yeah, it'll pour yeah. out when the va- so you're bagging how many tubes per? Uh, one tube per uh, large bag. All right, here's here's the awesome thing. Did you let the vacuum cycle complete? Uh, no, I didn't. It's 
it seemed like it was going to come up out of the bag. Yeah, yeah here's here's you know? yeah here's this is awesome. Now there, I mean, oh, look, the one problem, of course, is a cheesecake has some air in it. But assuming you have a fully dense product. Let the vacuum cycle complete. Here's what happens. When you vacuum something uh, it, with, a, with a tube like that, first of all, you've got to make sure that you have enough liquid to fully fill the tube because if you don't, the bag will go in and puncture itself on the tube. But if you have enough liquid to fill the tube, all of the liquid will be smashed back into – it's a miracle. Well, how liquidy is it? Is it semi-solid or, or what? Well, it, it's cheesecake, but it's uh, made with uh, like a – 75% mascarpone, uh, and it is pretty much like a mascarpone consistency. Right. And then, right. So here's what's awesome. Like, uh, like when you suck a vacuum on a straight liquid, I've never tried it with something that's a paste consistency. Everything's going to boil out of your container, and then as soon as the vacuum comes back in, the force of the vacuum will smash it back into the tube. Okay. So it was. It'll do that with a dense uh, liquid as well, like the cheesecake, you think? As long as it can move. I mean, you might not get 100% back, but you'll definitely get like 95. I mean, I used to, that used to be one of my favorite things to do uh, because we would vacuum, I would vacuum pack. uh, liquids in 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 uh, bottles you know like doing that i would like i would pour all the liquid into the bag and then like have the cap on very loose and then put it all in a bag and then suck a vacuum and then the vacuum would shoot all of the liquid inside the bottle uh yeah you know that's my i used to do that that's fun i mean your point is well taken on something that's thick i mean it eventually will work the way back in there because otherwise there's going to be a lot of excess force on it because there's going to be now the, the the question is is will the product get forced back into the tube uh prior to the bag feeling enough force on the uh in the um in the cavity on the inside of the tube prior to that shattering right i mean that's the real question but another thing you could do is i mean uh, do you do you need the vacuum to get the air out were you having problems with air in it without the vacuum i was no, I, I, it does fine in a conventional oven, but I was trying to. Uh, I wanted to try the sous vide cheesecake because I wanted, I wanted uh, the consistency to be like, you know, uh, no air whatsoever, no pocket, no nothing like that. Sure. Well, then, uh, yeah. Okay. So if you're looking to comp- make it much denser, it then definitely vacuums the way to go, and just do it and. T- see whether or not it all gets forced back into the tube. I think you have a very good shot of it all being forced back into the tube. You might have to clip the two ends because they're going to be a little concave or convex depending on whether you slightly overstuffed or slightly understuffed the tube. But I would definitely go that way. If you're not worried about the density issue, if you're just tr- using it as a temperature control issue, well, then I would, uh, you know, if you had access to a CVAP, obviously I would just cook it in a CVAP or a combi oven. But if not, I would try wrapping the tube after it's stuffed with uh, saran, with plastic wrap doing a uh, you know a couple of layers of it uh and that should be watertight enough for you to poach in it that way but if you're looking to actually remove all the air and de-densify it i would say that vacuum is the way to go and it'll all get shoved back in in fact excuse me in fact the reason that it's puffing out is not just because the water the water and liquids inside are turning to a vapor although that's causing it but any air pockets that you're having in there need to push open and push the product out of the way to get out of the tube you know what i'm saying yeah, so you think I should put it in like a 
a four-inch hotel pan and and run it through a couple of cycles? Oh, you can do that, and that'll get rid of a lot of the air, too. But I, I have a, a strong feeling. I would say I am more than 50% positive that if you just stick the tubes with the mixture in the vac bag and, su- and make sure it's packed in good and you suck a full vacuum on it, that it will all boil out, but it'll go back in the tube. I give you maybe I'll give you fifty percent odds on that working for you. And if not, I would just put the mixture in the hotel pan, like you say, blast it a couple times in the vacuum to get the air out. Then do a dense pack into the tube, and then wrapper and plastic, and then do it in the either uh, either low temp or do it in the. Um, uh, you could do it in an oven if you're having good luck in an oven. So you think even though it's uh, open at both ends? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. As, as long as there's, there's no as long as there's enough. I mean, try. I mean, like the the, the issue is 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 it is it going to move fast enough to get back into the tube? That's the real real question. But I mean, you can try it with water. You'll see if you if you put just enough water to exactly fill that tube and just throw it into the bag with the tube and vacuum it, all of the water will end up in the tube, all of it. But it's yeah. you know, but uh, it's a question when it's so thick whether or not it's going to move well enough. But I, like I say, that's why I'm giving you like. 50, I'm not giving you 100% odds. I'm giving you like 50%. <laughs> yeah. All right. I understand. And what do you suggest uh, with the 179 Fahrenheit like that? Oh, for, uh, cheesecakes? I don't know. I usually do things like that. I can't do the Fahrenheit conversions. I usually do them up uh, in like the – I usually do them in like the low 80s, somewhere in there, like the low 80s in Celsius probably. Uh, okay. Somewhere That's around fine. There. I can work with that. Uh, yeah. I mean usually I think. I'd have to go back and look at my numbers. It's been a long time. But anyway, tell us, tell us how it works. Shoot, shoot us a, uh, a Twitter or whatnot and tell, tell me how it works. All right. Thanks, Dave. All right, thank Have you. a good day. You too. Bye. Um, by the way, on Twitter, you know what? If you ever want to insult uh, Nastasha, she sees all of my emails but not my Twitter. Just saying. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pat- just kidding. Pat- Patrick Martin's also not on Twitter. I think you guys are the only two. He's not on Twitter? No. Or Facebook or anything. Wow. He's, you know, I don't know. Uh, yeah. too, too exclusive. Wow. Wow. All righty. Okay. Will Freeman writes in at RebelCat. At Heritage Radio and Dave Arnold, could you please discuss sparkling water served with espresso? Theory and practice. Word to Nastasha, Jack, and the crew. Again, that's a, an and the rest reference from the first Gilligan's Island. Uh, remember that? Anyway, I won't go into it again. So uh, carbonated water with seltzer. Uh, I enjoy it. You don't You don't. I mean, yeah, sorry. Carbonated water with, uh, with espresso. I, I enjoy it. You don't drink espresso, no. right, Sess? Any of you guys over there espresso? Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah, you like the carbonated. I actually have never had the carbonated, but I like espresso. Yeah. Okay, so when you get it, when you order an espresso in a lot of nicer joints, uh, they will give you uh, a, gla- a water back, right? A glass of water uh, with it, and then a lot of the uh, places that I like, like in San Francisco, for instance, like Blue Bottle and other places, they'll give you a carbonated water back. And uh, it seems kind of strange. At first, you wouldn't think that carbonated water would necessarily go well with coffee. I mean, there's very few carbonated coffee drinks. Manhattan uh, Special Soda being the one obvious, um, you know, that's the only really carbonated coffee thing I can think of. So it's not necessarily – and by the way, Manhattan doesn't refer to our Manhattan, Nastasha. It refers to Manhattan Avenue here in Brooklyn. So it's like, you know, it's actually a Brooklyn product. So you can't drink it. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, I, we saw the factory. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so uh, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I, I like it. And I, it put it this way. What is it there for? Espresso is gone in, like, 13 seconds, especially, like, a modern American espresso. You're drinking it in, like, 13 seconds because of the incredibly short shots that they're pulling these days. It used to be that a double was, you know, like an ounce and three quarters or so or an ounce and a half. Now, like, a double is, you know, 
almost not even coating the bottom of your cup at some of these places. I think it's gone a little far uh, in, in, in that respect in, in some ways. But, but you have a strong tasting thing and you need something to clear your mouth out at the end. So in general, what I do is I drink the espresso uh, and then uh, I pound the water and regular water doesn't clean your mouth out or make you feel refreshed the way sparkling water does. I mean straight up, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think I don't know if there's any theory other than I'm sure the people who started doing it were offering a sparkling mineral water as a, as a thing, and that just happened to be the water of their of their of their preference. But uh, I didn't find anything uh, on the kind of history of it. All I'm saying is I enjoy it. So I'm assuming you enjoy it as well at Rebel Cat. Anyway, uh, Ben another, writes it. Another caller. Oh, caller, you're on the air. Hello. Howdy. Hi, hi. I'm uh, I'm Stephen Bensinger. I'm a big fan of your show. Oh, thank you. Uh, I had a quick question about juicers. Okay, good. What, what's um, the question? I, I need a, a juicer that can also juice greens effectively and extract as much possible out of the green. Uh, and I I was looking for one in a in a reasonable price range. Uh, and if if that's if that's not possible, then uh, is there any way to modify a cheaper juicer to be able to do that? When you say greens, you mean like kale? Yes. Okay. Uh, all right. Okay, good. So what do you have now? Oh, I, I don't have one yet. I'm looking, I'm in the market. Okay. So the, now there, there's all sorts of juicers that I myself don't, uh, don't own and haven't even, uh, tested. My main experience it, with juice style juicers are with the smaller, uh, the smaller, like weird basket centrifugal guys, and I've never had much uh, luck with them. I don't really, never been so happy with them. The majority of my experience is with a Champion juicer. Champion juicer is a, is a masticating juicer, and so okay. you know, it's what it does is it's got a, a, a long nose and it's got little teeth on that long nose, and you shove stuff down and it just grinds it up with the, and then the juice. Uh, spits out of the bottom through a mesh screen and then the chaff comes out the front, right? And it, the champion can juice just about anything uh, with the exception it can't do sugar cane. Uh, I, don't re- I don't think it's very good at wheatgrass, right? Uh, but it does okay. apples, it'll do kale, it'll do all those things, ginger, anything. Carrots, uh, loves carrots, it loves to do carrots. Now, <clears throat> Uh, the, the one gripe people have with the champ and the champion is relatively reasonably priced, right? It's like I think we paid what like two hundred for it or something mm-hmm. like that, and it's uh, uh-huh. and it's a monster workhorse, right? You you can beat the heck out of it all day long, and and nothing, it's not going to die. I have. I think I said on this show, if not, I've said elsewhere that I, have, I had one once that I ran so long and so hard juicing apples that uh, the surface of the case was boiling water, and the uh, and I actually I actually melted the electronics on the inside of it, the uh, safety circuit, but it's still juiced. I mean, that's kind of how sturdy these suckers are. Oh wow! But the one gripe that people have about the Champion is that it can heat up your products. Okay, and so with greens and certain other things, uh, that can be uh, a problem. By the way, when you're juicing something, if you juice something that has a tendency to turn brown after it's been uh, cut up, what you want to do is put ascorbic acid, vitamin C, actually into the pan that you're juicing into, and that's gonna uh, that's gonna really um, retard the browning that happens. For instance, apples or anything else. But you know, kale okay. and stuff is no problem. But if you need something that's more gentle. 
right? And for things like greens, you can get uh, – there, there's a juicer called the Green Star Juicer. That's, that's, it's, it runs with two gears, and the two gears crush the product as it's going through, and that produces the juice. And that juice is at a much lower temperature, and so people like it. It's a little more expensive than a champion. I don't have any personal experience with it, but Sam Mason, uh, you know, when he was opening Taylor, had a, a champion and a juice uh, Green Star, and he said he really liked the Green Star, but he said the yield was a lot lower. So I don't know how important the yield is. Because that's another thing to look at whenever well, you're looking at a juicer is how much you're leaving behind. Okay, I'm a, I'm a chemist. The yield is actually pretty important to me. <laughs> right, okay. Um, um, and uh, I, was also, I was also curious, so, since I'm going to be making savory juices sometimes as well, instead of using a scorbit, can I use some type of vinegar or citric acid or something like that instead to make sure that the browning doesn't occur? Okay, well, it depends. So, so if you're... Like there's two ways to retard browning, right? So you're you're a chemist, so like, but we'll, for everyone, we'll one you lower the, the browning is caused by uh, an en- enzymes that are present in the juice, right? Uh, I believe they're polyphenol oxidases that are that are uh, agglomerating um, things together into things that turn brown, that look brown, and that anyway that make things take oxidized. So and other oxidation reactions are happening. In fact, I think the browning is only the only one of the things that's going on for the oxidation reaction. So, but they're mainly enzymatically caused, which means you can retard a lot of that browning by simply lowering the pH to the point where those enzymes are no longer active, right? That's mm-hmm. one mode. Or two, add something that is actively an antioxidant like ascorbic acid. Right, so the other acids okay. are only going to act insofar as they're going to lower the pH, whereas they're not as effective as actual antioxidants as you would have in something like ascorbic acid. Now, if you didn't want the ascorbic acid taste, right? But although ascorbic acid is r- very light on taste, you could move to something like uh, sodium metabisulfite uh, or something like that as an antioxidant, and a lot of people. Use that, but the problem is, is that if you overdose on uh, on one of the sulfite things, you start to taste that vaguely sulfurous note, but you won't taste it in smaller quantities. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Let us know how it goes. All right. I will. All right. Uh, wait, Stash, should we go to our first commercial yeah. break? We're going to our first commercial break. Cooking issues. We'll be right back. <laughs> Thank you. 
true mom-and-pop operation since 2006, the Brooklyn Kitchen provides the tools that shape our food culture. They stock a curated variety of pots, pans, knives, small appliances, and other kitchen essentials. Their grocery department works closely with local farms and food artisans to bring you the tastiest fresh produce, dairy, and pantry items. Their teaching kitchens allow them to offer a wide breadth of cooking classes, from knife skills to pick butchering, from cooking for couples to pickling and canning, from home brewing to pie making. Something new is always happening at the Brooklyn Kitchen. Visit them at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or visit thebrooklynkitchen.com. You guys put some scary music to that. Yeah, yeah right? I feel like I'm going to get butchered. That's the point. It's not a scary place. Yeah, I was asking Nastasia before the show if she'd ever been to Brooklyn Kitchen, but then I forgot she's never really been to Brooklyn outside of Roberta's. So. Oh, yeah, no, she makes a beeline directly for the subway when she gets out of here, like slapping yeah. the hipsters off her like mosquitoes as she's running. Tell the joke, babe. Which one? one? Your joke. It's your joke. Better, you, you tell it. it. Yeah, you'll say it better. No, you, it's Nastasia. You, okay. you, How much does a hipster weigh? How much? An Instagram. <laughs> oh. Wow. Well, thank goodness she's measuring in grams. Wow. There we go. All right. At Clefs writes in, at Cooking Issues, what starch have you found to be the least cloudy when using as a thickener for hot sauces? Uh, or do you have any non-starch ideas? Okay, well, that's an interesting question. Uh, and you want something that's hot soluble, uh, so you, you know, heat it up and uh, to coat the back of a spoon with thick, uh, coat, the, coat the back of the spoon, as they say, a nepal, as they say in the trade, uh, or maybe a little bit thicker. So uh, if you're interested in starch clarity and the theory behind starch clarity, you can look up a 1989 article called Starch Paste Clarity by SAS Craig. It's available on the internet, uh, and you can look it up. But in general, if you're looking for uh, a regular starch, you know, not a modified, if you want a modified, uh, uh, not even a modified, but a very highly tuned starch, you can go to the National Starch Corporation, and they have any number of starches that are already that are they're made specifically for things like clarity. In fact, they have gel, they have starches that have the word clarity and purity in their name that are intended to be very highly clear. But if you're looking to get uh, kind of a more normal, just like a grocery store situation with starch, uh, the way the reason starches um, are cl- when, when starch becomes clear typically means that the starch is swelling rapidly and the starch granules break uh, rapidly and the starch goes completely into solution rapidly and that makes for maximum clarity, right? So the starches that have that are ones like potato starch or uh, tapioca starch, uh, root-based and tuber-based starches. These starches tend to swell extremely rapidly. The granules rupture rapidly at which point it becomes very clear. Uh, so, you know, those, those are going to have higher clarity, things like potato starch. Um, also starch that's higher, like other types of starch, like waxy cornstarch, not cornstarch, but waxy cornstarch, which is high in amylopectin, uh, tends to be uh, more clear because amylopectin, uh, tends to be uh, more clear and it's easier to paste out and also retrograde less. Now, any starch you have is going to have the issue that when it cools down, it's going to thicken significantly. I think less so probably for potato starch, but I haven't, I didn't have a chance to uh, look it up. If you want to move just to a hydrocolloid for thickening with clarity, then obviously you can add a little bit of xanthan at the end of your cooking procedure and it will stay uh, – it will add its thickening capability whether it's hot or it's cold. The problem with xanthan is if you add too much xanthan, uh, your product's going to get snotty. It looks really like snot and very jiggly. So you want to add low percentages. You never want to add really more than about uh, – to a sauce more than about a quarter of a percent up to about a th- third of a percent. If you go over that, 
that, uh, you're going to start noticing some xanthan characteristics to it. You can go up to half a percent sometimes, but I wouldn't. You know what I mean? You start, and you know, we hate the, the xanthan-y look at things, right? That kind of jiggly, mm-hmm. that jiggly look. Uh, in a sauce, it's going to be eaten uh, as a lot of sauce. In certain applications, it's okay to have that texture because you're not having a large quantity of it there where you can see the motion on the surface. It's mainly the motion on the surface. I mean, there's some snotty texture to the actual mouthfeel, but mostly it's the way it looks that is so horrible, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you might want to move to something like not a regular locust bean gum, but a uh, you know a purified locust bean gum. They're hot soluble. They need to be heated up, but they can be very uh, good. Clear locust bean gum, and you can buy that from. I'm sure Modern's Pantry carries it, or if not, you know CP Kelco makes some. A bunch of people make clear locust bean gums, but they're uh, highly refined. They're good thickeners. Also, purified guar is uh, very clear, and so you can get a good purified guar gum. Guar is cold or hot, so you can add it and then uh, you know use it as you go. Uh, and maybe those will be useful for you. you got to make sure that you don't get just regular cruddy guar because regular cruddy guar tastes bad and regular cruddy guar also is not clear because it hasn't been purified to have only the hydrocolloid, the active uh, polysaccharides in it. Uh, I believe – what are they? Glucomannins? Whatever. I can't remember. But anyway, so you uh, get a hold of those. Of course, we all know the price of guar has gone up due to fracking. Thanks, fracking. Thanks a lot. Thanks. You know, you know – I heard there's an environmental problem with it, too. I haven't heard that. <laughs> anyway. Then again, I only listen to cooking issues. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Uh, so anyway, so uh, take a look at that. Hopefully, uh, that will uh, work out for you. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we have a question in from Zoe at 69 Cobra Grow, our friend Tony Canigliaro's place, and the Drink Factory, and they, they hope we're doing well. Are we? Yeah? yeah. Okay. Uh, we're looking to do some work with calcium oxide, and I'm wondering if you had any advice. Also, this may sound a bit strange, but knowing it, be- it can be quite an aggressive chemical, is there a food-safe version of it, or is it a case of just being careful? Uh, as always, any information is greatly appreciated. Um, okay. Calcium oxide, I have not heard – so calcium oxide is CaO, right? Quicklime. Uh, and the main use of calcium oxide that I know of in food is actually to make self-heating cans because you add – anytime uh, calcium oxide is added to water, it's going to have a, a very, very strong reaction where it absorbs the water and turns into calcium hydroxide. Uh, and that reaction liberates a boatload of heat. So if you go to the Wikipedia – uh, this is what they quoted, so you know, I can't verify it because it's Wikipedia. You know, I, you know, Nastasha could go in there and enter that, you know, whatever she wants, right? True. In fact, yeah. she's doing it right now. Uh, uh, maybe, I think that's actually what she's doing all the time. What she's doing is she's actually just loading updating, in, like, updating she's up, updating Wiki, like really like random facts. She's like, uh, you know, she's like Elliot Gould. <laughs> Elliot Gould's Wikipedia. You have written on Elliot Gould's no! Wikipedia page. Awesome. <laughs> Awesome. I love myself. I love my Elliot Gould. We were talking about him like over Christmas. Oh, man. I love my man. I love <laughs> myself some Elliot Gould. What happened to Elliot Gould? I don't know. I love, I love myself some Elliot Gould. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so, you know, don't trust anything on Elliot Gould's Wikipedia page <laughs> from now on because, you know, Nastasia just put her fingers in there. Yeah. So, like all of a sudden, you know, Elliot Gould's going to be friends with Elton John. All sorts of terrible things are going to happen. Anyway, uh, according to them, one liter of water. We'll combine with uh, 3.1 kilograms of uh, calcium oxide to uh, give 
uh, calcium hydroxide and 3.4 megajoules of energy. To put that into perspective, that is an entire kilowatt hour or the same amount of energy it takes to run a thousand watt thing for an hour or in calories, 846,000 calories and it can deliver it at a fairly high heat. So that's a very high heat interaction. So I don't know of any use for calcium oxide uh, itself in, in food, but calcium hydroxide uh, is extremely uh, interesting. So calcium hydroxide, which you can get um, as form of pickling lime, uh, you can get it in uh, Mexican places as uh, as uh, cal, which is you know what was used for nixtamalization. Uh, it's also available. My brain just erased, but it's also available under a couple of other names. But you know that stuff's great, and it's uh, oh uh, Thai red lime paste and Thai lime paste. You can get it. It has uh, you know it's calcium hydroxide base, and it, that's really interesting. It has a faint cementy taste on its own. It's not very soluble, but it, it's also used uh, to do things. Um, <clears throat> Like nixtamalization, which uh, ch- changes the taste of things, and anything that requires something that's either as basic or that has calcium is one of the reactions. So we we use it a lot. It's also used in uh, sugar production uh, because they uh, for a number of reasons. And this is interesting. This is I did not know. I knew that they have to keep sugar on the relatively basic side when they're processing it to prevent it from inverting, right? Because it, if, if, if sugar is even a little bit acidic, so if sucrose, table sugar, is even a little bit acidic as it's being processed, it will invert into uh, glucose and fructose separately, which is a problem for sugar manufacturers because then it won't crystallize out. And they don't sell fructose and glucose. They sell sucrose. They sell table sugar. So everything is kept uh, on the neutral or slightly basic side. But when you're doing when they're doing beet sugar, they go through a process, and I learned this this morning of not carbonation, one of my favorite things on the earth, but carbonation. And what they do there is they put uh, they put calcium hydroxide into the mix with uh, into the into the juice, and then they shoot uh, CO two carbon dioxide into that. And what happens is the carbon dioxide reacts with the uh, calcium hydroxide to form calcium carbonate, and calcium carbonate isn't soluble. So it what it does is it forms particles of calcium carbonate and as it forms those particles it traps other things in it and so it can be used as a clarifying aid. So if anyone out there, I wonder whether there's a way to do an inexpensive uh you know centrifuge free uh clarif- quick, fairly quick clarification using calcium hydroxide. Maybe interesting. Someone check it out. Someone tells me what's going on. Anyway, uh so uh there you have it, right? Okay. Uh, Milk Cult wrote in, can you guys cover real buttermilk, the byproduct of butter production, and acidified buttermilk and impacts on hydrocolloids? Well, um, okay. Uh, So here's the thing. So when I use – whenever you go buy buttermilk in a store, you're buying what's called cultured buttermilk, and it's not really buttermilk. It's just a low-fat milk that they treat with a culture that's, I guess, you know, similar to what would be uh, in a – in real cultured cream, right? Now – so what you're getting there is the actual milk. The casein is there. Uh, you know everything is there in the normal proportions as would be for low-fat milk. Only it's been cultured with uh, bacteria, so it's tart, it's acidic, uh, and it's thicker. Right? Uh, in buttermilk, what you do is you take cream and you make butter with it, and the stuff that's left over is 
buttermilk. That's what real buttermilk is. And what it's mainly composed of is the whey proteins, the because you know the the casein is what's the the, the milk solids go with the oil when you're making butter, but you you know you have some you have casein, some casein I guess the casein comes out too. But some of it's trapped as milk solids in the thing. But may, all the whey proteins are basically in in there. Uh, I guess some casein, some fat uh, some little bit of fat that's left over, uh, and a lot of like great, uh, uh, emulsifiers and, and lactose and water. Um, if you use sweet cream to make it, uh, in other words, just like right from, as the way you buy it from the grocery store, then, uh, that cream, it will not be tart. It will not be acidic. So most of the recipes that you're using buttermilk for in, uh, you know, pancakes and whatnot, you, what you're really using them for is the acidity. You're counting on the acidity from them. And that's why you add baking soda to those recipes because the baking soda is interacting with the acidity in the buttermilk to leaven your products. Like let's say pancakes. Uh, you know, they also tend to make it more tender crumb, things like biscuits. Not that Nastasha would know because she hates biscuits. Uh, very similarly, sourdough starter is mainly used in pancakes not for its leavening capability, and that's why you can use an old, nasty sourdough starter for pancakes. You're using a sourdough starter there for its acidity, to re- and that's why a lot of those buttermilk pan- – uh, sorry, sourdough pancakes will have soda in them, baking soda in them because they're actually doing an acid-base reaction and not – uh, leavening uh, in a traditional way, or they're augmenting the traditional leavening with an acid-base reaction. However, when I make buttermilk, I typically take my cream. I will buy buttermilk, and you have to make sure that the buttermilk that you're using is uh, has active cultures. And so, the one I get from Whole Foods is usually very active. Uh, the, I've had bad luck sometimes with the one I get at my local supermarket uh, of the a culture not being active enough. And then you take your cream, and to like your quart of cream, you can add. Uh, you know, like a half a cup or so of buttermilk, and then you, I let it sit out in the kitchen overnight, and then my cream is cultured, and then I get real buttermilk from, and that's the way you would make cultured butter. To be let it sit however long you want for the culture to develop, for the cream to ripen, and then you make uh, your butter with it. That buttermilk is acidic, and that buttermilk, so that buttermilk has the like the best of all the world. It has like the interesting, awesome taste of buttermilk. It has the emulsifying properties uh, of you know that are in a uh, in traditional old school buttermilk, and it also has uh, which I guess mainly come from probably the whey proteins. I'm not sure, and it also has uh, the acidity. So, what do you think? Ben? Good, good, okay. Um, and I guess it's time for our second commercial break already. Sure. Yeah, second commercial break. Cooking issues. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Welcome 
back to Cooking Issues. Anna from Hungary wrote in, thank you for covering my questions last week and clearing up my dulce de leche recipes and processes. I made dulce de leche without the water this past weekend and stirred almost constantly and it did work. Previously, I thought the water was there to prevent the milk or sugar from burning while they interact and the water is just slowing the process. I read more on the Maillard reaction. I learned a lot. Anyways, I want to say thank you for giving me a heads up and now we're ready for flavors and perfecting the recipe. Well, thanks. I'd love to hear a feedback that something actually worked, right? Right. Right. Feels good. Uh, Okay. Uh, In from Nick in Seoul, Korea. Uh, And he's writing to you, Nastasha, because he doesn't really care what I say. Sorry we missed you this week. Uh, I'm Nick from Seoul, Korea. I called about cold smoking bacon. I just want to follow up my inquiry. Dave says I'm not going to get the desired effect, uh, which, by the way, is to reduce the emissions and deposit of harmful substances while preserving the good smoky flavor of bacon. Because the good smoky aroma that we love is released... Uh, at the combustion temperatures along with the various possible carcinogens and other nasty stuff. Well, that is unless I make major major modifications to my setup. What if you go low and slow? Wood's essential oils and aroma compounds uh, are uh, also released at lower temperatures, say 200 to 300 Celsius. No. Wouldn't keeping it under the combustion temperature of 200 or 300 Celsius for longer duration more or less produce the desired effect? And also, do you have any experience smoking with herbs, grains, flowers, and pollens, or any mixture of them? Are there any things I should be made aware of before giving it a whirl? Looking forward to hearing from you. Best regards, Nick. Okay, so we have to separate what's going on here. Uh, Wood's essential oils and aromas do go out at lower temperatures. But you got to remember, these are compounds that are already in the wood themselves. So things like the aroma of cedar or the aroma of sandalwood or any of those aromas or pine, those, those things are in the wood uh, and relatively easy to volatilize. In fact, they're there. You can smell them, right? So they're clearly, they're fairly easy to volatilize. The other things in them, uh, like, you know, the the phenolic uh, things, like uh, the one that you always think of as being associated with smoky flavor is guayacol. And uh, that is not in the wood to begin with. It needs to be produced, and it's produced... uh, by the pyrolysis of lignin at high temperatures. Now, is there a way maybe to uh, produce it really long? It's no, I don't know. I haven't wasn't able to find anything in the literature to to make to figure out like what those flavors uh, to produce those flavors at a lower temperature. In addition, remember that the temperature at which the uh, smoke is produced. It, even in the, in the higher temperature range, which is where we're talking about, uh, the actual flavors that you're produced, the actual reactions that take place are dependent on that temperature. So the flavor of a particular smoke is going to depend on the temperature at which it's created as well. So it's not like even all high temperatures are created equal. But I don't know of a way that you can get traditional smoke flavors at lower temperatures. Now, like I say, getting the volatiles out of it and making those kind of flavors, I think, would be very, uh, you know, be easy to do at those lower temperatures, but not the traditional smoky flavor. If someone tell, someone call back and or write me and tell me of a way to do it, uh, but I, I don't know of any way. Okay, uh, hello, cooking issues team from Matthew. Uh, I hope everything is good with you guys in 2013. I decided to add some xanthan gum and soy lecithin to my vinaigrette recipe to help it stay emulsified. Uh, now, xanthan is, of course, uh, the you know one of the magic hydrocolloids that uh, comes from uh, bacteria, and it's awesome because you can use it in very small quantities, so it doesn't mask flavor. It can go into almost any recipe, whether it's acidic or not acidic. It can go. It can be heated. It can be cold. Uh, it it is. It suspends things like pepper because it has what 
what's called a yield point, so it forms a, uh, a weak gel unless it's being uh, agitated. So it's amazing stuff. Uh, problem before, we said you use too much of it and things get snotty, but it's really kind of uh, amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, so lecithin, of course, is lecithin, which is a phospholipid that's derived from uh, soybean uh, uh, processing. Um, lecithin is in a lot of recipes. Anytime we use egg yolk as an emulsifier, we're also using lecithin, but remember lecithin from an egg yolk is not the same thing as lecithin from soy. Very related though. Anyway, uh, that was just a, the, before we get to the full thing, so you know. Okay. The first recipe I used for a reference was here on HTTP modernistcookingmadeeasy.com uh, and they made a uh, maple vinaigrette recipe. It called for 0.6% lecithin and 0.2% xanthan. I made a vinaigrette that was about 840 grams uh, and then added 5 grams of lecithin and 1.7 grams of xanthan and spun the whole thing in a Vitaprep. Vitaprep's always a good call, by the way. Love the Vitaprep. Uh, alas, it broke almost immediately and shortly after completely separated. After this, I consulted uh, Martin Lersch's Kaimos's Texturous uh, Hydrocolloid Cookbook uh, and its recipe called for 0.2% lecithin and 0.1 to 0.4% xanthan. Again, I started with 840 grams of vinaigrette and then added 1.7 grams of lecithin and 0.85 grams of xanthan. Also, a complete failure. I'm not really sure where I went wrong. Maybe my inferior math skills contributed. Uh, in both cases, I completely ignored the recipes and used my own vinaigrette recipe and just added the hydrocolloids in the proportion specified. Could this be the issue? I assume that with the additives and the ratios, uh, the, with the additives, the ratios of the other components weren't as important. Any su- other suggestions or ideas on using lecithin, lecithin, xanthan, or other stuff to keep dressings nicely emulsified? Thanks. Okay, uh, we tend to use. Um, uh, when I'm thinking salad dressings, I typically use something called uh, a ticaloid, uh, you know, 310 or, or, or 210 or 201 or 301. I think they're all very similar. They're mixtures of gum arabic and xanthan because I have a lot of them around because I use them in, in drinks. So they're, they're using a gum arabic slash xanthan system to, to thicken and stabilize, and those things last forever forever and both of them are very good at different uh at different acid levels so here's a way i there, there's a couple of things that can be going wrong there first of all i looked at the recipes and both recipes uh state their percentages in a way that is normal for cooks to state them but not really um accurate uh hydrocolloids the th- the, the thickening power of a hydrocolloid is based strictly on uh how much it's interacting with the water in a system so i looked at the maple vinaigrette uh recipe. It was 45 grams of balsamic vinegar, 15 grams of lemon juice, and 20 grams of maple syrup, and 90 grams of olive oil. So when they were doing the recipe calculations for that, they added all of those numbers up to get the percentages. However, uh, the xanthan gum isn't interacting with the 90 grams of oil, so it shouldn't factor into your percentages, right? It's just not, it shouldn't. Uh, Also, the uh, balsamic vinegar is mostly water, so that's okay. The lemon juice is mostly water, so that's okay. And the 20 grams of maple syrup, though, is only one-third water. So that's like seven grams. So if you look at it, uh, this recipe, uh, they says that one gram of lecithin is 0.6%. It's actually using 1.4% of lecithin on a water basis. Now, lecithin you can't really count as a water basis alone because uh, it's interacting with the oil because it's an emulsifier. So like there, the, the water... The total uh, amount and the water oil part is is important. I don't really know how to work it out from an accurate standpoint, but anyway. But back on the xanthan gum, uh, he says he's using 0.2% xanthan gum, but on a water base, he's really using 0.45% xanthan gum. 
Okay, so one one problem is is that when you're looking at it, you should look at the amount of water in your recipe for your xanthan. And in fact, he's adding 0.45. I went and analyzed uh, Martin Lersch's recipe, and he's using um, I have it here somewhere. I'm, uh, yeah, he's using uh, actually much more xanthan uh, than he would because he's not counting the oil on the xanthan either. So. <clears throat> I, you could up your xanthan or make sure your percentages are in line with uh, what they want for the liquid. Another problem you might be having is maybe your lecithin is no good and your lecithin is – are you using powdered lecithin or are you using the one that's in granules? The granules might not be dissolving properly. The good way to figure out whether the, it's the lecithin that's the problem is you can figure on a general basis that egg yolks are roughly 10 percent lecithin. So if your recipe works just by adding 10 times uh, the amount of egg yolk as you added uh, lecithin, Thin, right? So in your case, let's say you were using the one gram of lecithin. If you were adding 10 grams of egg yolks, it should have roughly that same amount of lecithin, but it's not going to be a problem hydrating. So that one, if you added the egg yolk and it worked, then bang, it's probably your lecithin's not going in there properly. Could be you weren't hydrating the xanthan properly. Remember, you're doing it in a very acidic environment here uh, if you're using some of these recipes. So just take a look at it. Uh, another, uh, so I would look at your hydration, even though you're using a vitaprep, and make sure everything's getting hydrated. Uh, um, I don't know about lecithin's um, performance in extremely acidic environments. I don't know how acidic your environment is. But look at the actual water content of what's going on. Test it with egg yolk to see whether that's the problem. Uh, up the xanthan slightly uh, because the, the way the percentages are being calculated is, uh, is a little bit uh, wonky. Or switch to something like Ticaloid 310, which I know works in these situations because I've done it. All the time. Now, one more thing is that you might want to whisk the lecithin into the into the oil if you can, and if you have a water. Uh, that's in there that isn't very acidic. If you're using something that's not very acidic, I would put the hydrocolloids as much into a non-acidic thing as possible before you start. They'll hydrate faster and easier. Uh, yeah? What do you think? Good. Good? All right. Uh, okay. Let me see. Find another good question. Uh, oh, we had a question in from Ben. Uh, actually, we probably only have time for like one or two more questions anyway, right? Yeah. So uh, we have a question in from Ben uh, from San Francisco. He says, hello, Dave, Hammer, uh, and Jack. And, and, and I'm going to put Joe in there. Yeah, really. I, come on. I know Guys, he, I know shout outs to it. Joe when you submit questions. <laughs> no, seriously. Seriously, people. Where's the love? I know it. I know it. You know what? Although I'm sure you get the love as the front man in the band, right? So like, no. All I want on Valentine's Day is to be recognized on Wait, issues. <laughs> Next week is our Valentine's show. Right, but you know... 12th. It's not two weeks from now. Yeah, but the, the, the Valentine's Day is on the 14th, right? Yeah. Yeah, so... so before. Yeah, but, like, but, but Ben wants, like, advice now. He's got to plan in no, advance. No, 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 He's not going to oh, make yeah, his... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just yeah. saying... Right. I know just let you know. So, yeah, next week we'll, you know, we'll have the Valentine's Day, blah, 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 oh, blah. I thought you never answered this last week. No, I didn't get to it because oh, we had okay. callers. Okay. You would know if you... Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. I'm not. I'm not even gonna get into it. I'm not even gonna get into it. Don't. Don't make me. Okay. I was not here. Oh, and everyone else who's heard it is is here. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Ben went from San Francisco. Uh, big fan of the show and the blog so much so that I finished the entire cooking issues backlog while on winter vacation with my girlfriend on Jolly. Now remember, uh, she wrote in and said that, and we apologized to her on air for that for her having to listen to it. Uh, perhaps you recall her email. Uh, I do feel guilty about making her listen to it, but it was worth it. Uh, to make up for being such a horrible guy, I want to cook her uh, a unique and outstanding Valentine's dinner. 
All right, I like this kind of question, right? Uh, we can go off on this one. I have a great pressure cooker, the Fistler brand, which I haven't used that one actually yet. It wasn't, I, I don't have it, um, but I hear it's okay. I hear it's good. Uh, an immer- you like it a lot, so maybe it's great. I have no idea. I haven't used it. Uh, an immersion circulator, which is a, a he has a crazy old PolyScience uh, 7312. We have that. That's the one that's on our circulator chiller that we used uh, in the, that we use with the Rotovap or we're using with the Rotovap. A Vitamix, good call. Strong call on the Vitamix. I love it when someone has a Vitamix at home because that just makes everything easier uh and most regular equipment uh what would you make for your wife on valentine's day if you really owed her this time wow it's mostly something else other than just the cooking issues i mean i hope i'm not that much punishment i am kind of a little bit talk to my talk to my family uh if you really owed her this time something epic or unusual that a reasonably sophisticated amateur cook could make uh thanks for everything your future kickstarter supporter uh ben okay uh, this is an excellent question, but okay. So I have I have some good perspective. I've been doing uh, Valentine's uh, Day, uh, you know, meals for my wife for a long time, uh, and I don't tend to go out on Valentine's Day. Uh, I always, always, especially before I was doing this uh, professionally, uh, I was um, I was cooking her meals. Right. Uh, here's the here's the issue, and here's what you have to look out for when you're cooking a meal uh, at home. There for Valentine's Day, you're cooking it for just the two of you. I hope, <laughs> right? And so uh, the main problem is to organize your meal such that you actually get to sit down with her during the meal because it's it's going to be irritating for her if you're not sitting down at the meal with her, right? So that that used to be one of my main problems is I would have all this prep work done, but then there'd be a long lag in between the dishes as they as they rolled out. And also, you know, I would be standing up doing a lot of prep, so the dinners would go very long. This is why I would suggest to you that you get uh, that you do a lot of the stuff in the circulator and do as much post finishing as possible. Uh, you know, I would like you to write and tell me kind of like what she likes to eat. And then I could give you some more recommendations for, for right beforehand. But also I used to like to do like probably like four or five courses on the Valentine's Day. Get your desserts done beforehand, right? Uh, and, you know, this, it's, unfortunately it's cold out. So you could do some sort of like hot cold. I used to do a lot of things that lit on fire because, I mean, that's what I do. I light stuff on fire. But try to go – I mean I used, I used to go nuts. I would do – I would always do a fish, a poultry, a meat a dessert and an appetizer some for, for, uh, and finish with cheese. You definitely get a couple of bottles of wine and vacuvan. Don't force yourself to drink only one wine throughout the entire thing and start out with champagne, get a clamshell thing to open it. But I would definitely do uh, I would I would definitely do most of my work in the circulator if at all possible so that you can sit with her during uh, the time that you're eating and light something on fire at the end. Does that make sense? What do you think, Stas? Mm-hmm. What do you like to have for the you don't care about Valentine's? I don't care. What do you what what, what 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 would you like? I really don't. You don't care. She's like, make it hearty pasta. Just make it a hearty pasta. Hearty, hearty pasta. Oh, here's one for you. Try. Uh, so you know, if you like quail, and I like quail. The, the problem is also when you're doing this. Another problem you're doing if you don't do lots of plated dishes all the time because you're cooking at home. And why would you do that? The the problem is is that you plan a meal, and I've done this several times. Is you plan a long meal for the Valentine's Day, and then you don't uh, you 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 make her so full that she can't finish the last couple of things. And in fact, the main issue with all of the small plates uh, situations that you have in restaurants 
is it's extremely difficult to get the portion sizes right when you're doing multiple courses because a little bit too little and you're hungry at the end. Now, you can just solve that by making some sort of mega-filling dessert, right? Or a little bit too much and they can't finish this stuff as it goes through. Then you're going to get depressed because you've been working all this time and she's going to feel bad that she's not finishing what you're making. Either that or she's going to stuff herself, which would then make you know the both of you you know feel like you're stuffed. You don't like feeling stuffed at the end of it when you're when, on an on a occasion like that, right, Stas? No, there's no. no loving for later, right? I, I, I was hoping you would say that so I would not have to. Thank you. Appreciate nice. that. It's finally, Nastasha comes through for me in a pinch. Zinger. Bang! Hey, guess what, Cooking Issues listeners? I'm single. So for Valentine's Day, you know, shoot us a line. I'm the only one here without a date. Really? Yeah, man. Come on. Really? Jack there's has no date? No date. Really? Yep. All right, listen. Uh, anyone in the New York we area? We don't have any women listeners whoa wow <laughs> we don't know that wow i would be happy if we had women listeners i think we do wow anyway back to ben's problem ben <laughs> ben well jack oh, has a problem of a date <laughs> i'm working on okay we have two separate problems yeah. here i have ben's problem of what he's going to make on jolly for valentine's day and hopefully I'm, a- a- I'm giving him advice without giving him specific advice uh and then we have the problem that jack needs a date these are two separate uh, individual and then we have a problems. third problem that there are no female listeners of the show apparently yeah, you know, by the way, apparently Booker's new catchphrase. He says apparently every other word is apparently out of his mouth now. But, uh, uh, okay, so these all need to be addressed. But right now, uh, I'll, I'll say some of the things that, um, I mean, look, get an extremely, extremely, extremely high-quality steak uh, and then uh, do a low-temperature steak. Do 50, like, small piece, right? Cut it, pre-cut it so it's nice. Uh, do it at 55 uh, do it like up uh, at 55, drop it to 50, then do a finish au poivre style with like a cassis sauce, uh, and then you can finish it with whatever else you want as a steak course. That's a freaking knockout. It's not going to take you any time at all. Uh, make a good uh, beef, uh, like a beef tasting sauce beforehand because you're not going to have a pan foam to make the, uh, to make the cassis uh, sauce for the uh, poivre thing. But that's like there's a knockout. Also, uh, for the poultry side, if you might not want to go all low temp because then it's going to be a little bit too much. But, you know, a low temp duck breast sliced with like a side salad uh, where you just finish it in the pan after it's cooked because you could take it almost from cold in a pan to crisp up the skin, 57 degrees on the duck breast uh, for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Uh, make sure you smash the duck down so it's nice and flat on the, the skin before you put it in the, in the bag to cook it in the circulator. Also, a knockout and a good poultry thing to lead into the meat, especially if you keep your portions smaller. Uh, I would get the world's best Cheese, I like to have cheese uh, at the end before dessert. I like to have a cheese course. I just do with a glass of port. Uh, and you can do that or you can do it beforehand if you really need to. But to me, really good cheese makes a meal. Another – like if you want to go weird on the uh, on the, on the poultry side, get uh, the small quails, the small ones. You can buy them deboned already or you can inside out bone them. And this is one of my favorite things I used to do was I would low temp. I didn't have actually circulators at the time. So I had to do it old school. I would poach eggs uh, like a like a chump sucker, and then you would uh, you would shimmy the egg into the boneless quail, which is really kind of weirdly gross. Wait till you do it, you'll see. And then 
Uh, I mean, you don't want to deep fry on the Valentine's Day, but like flash cook or deep fry the quail so it's crispy on the outside. But then when you cut into it, the egg yolk is still runny, and it and it, the quail sauces itself. And that's a really interesting, fun thing. Like a quail with a with a runny egg on the inside that holds its shape, and you cut it, and it self sauces itself. Make sure you serve that on some sort of like thin but like well made kind of bruschetta thing, so that you can eat it uh, all all together. I mean, I've done that a couple times on Valentine's Day, uh, but the steak's always a winner. And I'm trying to think of what what else uh, what else I would do. But anyway, take those pieces of advice. Send me back a, a tweet, a line. Tell me what you're looking for exactly on uh, what she likes to eat. Uh, and uh, we need a date for Jack, right? Mm-hmm. We need some women <laughs> listeners and a date for Jack. Hey, women listeners, prove that you're there and call in oh, and man. give Jack some love. And next week on the questions, I want a shout out to Joe. Cooking issues. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.